Outstanding book. 131 Christians Everyone Should Know. Number 124, Perpetua. Now, we don't know what brought Perpetua to faith in Christ, but thanks to her diary and other prisoners, we do know how she lived her last few days and how she died. Perpetua was a noble woman who lived around 300 BC in Carthage, North Africa, where there was an extremely vibrant Christian community. So it's no surprise that when Emperor Severus decided to cripple Christianity, he focused on that particular area. And among the first to be arrested, listen to this, were five new converts who were recently taking a baptism class. One of them happened to be Perpetua. So her father ran to the prison. Now, he was an unbeliever, so from his perspective, there was a very easy way for Perpetua to get out of this. Just deny the faith. She responded, Father, do you see this vase? Could it be called by any other name than what it is? No, he replied. Well, then neither can I. I can't be called by any other name than what I am. I am a Christian. Now, as the days moved forward, Perpetua was relocated to a better part of the prison so she could feed her baby. So her father would come daily and he would appeal to her. In fact, he would throw himself on the ground and he would plead with her, do not abandon your husband and your child. Do not, do not abandon your family. We won't be able to live without you. Give up this pride of yours. Just deny the faith. But she was unwavering. She tried to comfort her father. It will all happen as God wills. For be sure, we are not left to ourselves, but we are in His sovereign will. When the day finally came, Perpetua and her friends were marched before the governor the other four prisoners were questioned first, and each in turn professed their faith in Christ, and each in turn refused to worship the emperor. Then the governor turned to Perpetua, and once again the father burst in suddenly, and he pleaded, have pity on your baby and perform the sacrifice. She replied again, I will not. So the governor asked, so then are you declaring yourself to be a Christian, knowing the consequences? Perpetually responded, yes. Unwavering. Yes. Governor heard all he needed, immediately sentenced Perpetua to die in the arena. They were transported to the stadium where wild beasts and gladiators circled the floor. And in the stands, the crowd roared for blood to be shed, which didn't take long all five were mangled by wild beasts, a boar, and lepers, but not killed. So they lined them up, and one by one brought a gladiator over who killed them with the sword. You might be thinking, you know, that's a pretty gruesome way to start a sermon, don't you think? And you'd be totally right. Here's the problem. We're going to be looking at some pretty gruesome stuff this morning in Exodus chapter 1. And we live, as I'm sure you notice, in a pretty gruesome world. Where we need to just plan on being confronted about our Christianity. So that we can prepare ourselves, not in our own strength, but in being absolutely convinced of God's unstoppable promises. So God's rule, God's reign, and God's sovereign plan. That the seed of the woman will ultimately crush the seed of the serpent. And therefore the certainty that God's plan will not be thwarted. No matter how difficult the situation. No matter how hostile the oppression. What God has promised will come to pass, including the death of His own dear Son, to secure our salvation. 
So with those thoughts in your mind, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, page 445. Encourage you to open your Bible. Encourage you to grab my outline. Follow along as I read the first seven verses. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, and Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now, as I said last week, Exodus assumes that you know the book of Genesis. In fact, do you know what the first word is in chapter 1, verse 1? Exodus 1, 1 starts with the word and. So it's literally a continuation of the Genesis narrative. But more specifically, it's the continuation of God's promises. But we have to flip back to Genesis 12 in order to put those promises on the table. So if you would, flip back to Genesis 12, page 8. We're going to do a little work in Genesis. I know that this is in your mind, but it has to be on the table before we get into all that we're going to look at this morning. Genesis chapter 12 Verses 1 to 7. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Verse 2. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So four very clear promises. God promises Abraham a great name, a great nation, a great blessing, and a great land. Incredible promises, which as we know, get confirmed over and over again as we make our way through the book of Genesis. So reiterated to each patriarch, God appears to each of them individually, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 12, chapter 12, 15, 17, 26, 28, and it's always the exact same promises. Great name, great nation, great blessing, and great land. Why do I tell you that again? Because this is not a one-hit wonder, right? This is not something that we're misunderstanding because it only appears once, or that we somehow got wrong. No. These promises are clear, reiterated to each of the patriarchs. But there is one other promise that's critical for us to understand this morning in Genesis 15. Go ahead and flip there. Verses 4 to 6. It says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, saying, This man, Eleazar, shall, be, shall not be your heir. Instead, your own son shall be your heir. So he brought him outside and said, Look to the heavens and number the stars if you are able. Then God said, so shall your offspring be. And of course, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You're like, yeah, I got that promise. Great nation. I know. But look at what happens next. God confirms his promises by telling Abraham to cut a bunch of animals in half and put one half on one side and the other half on the other side so that there's this clear lane to walk through. It's called cutting a covenant. Now, I understand if this doesn't make any sense to you at all. But this is essentially how people confirm promises in the ancient Near Eastern world. Because what we're saying, what they were saying as they walked through this lane is essentially that if I break my side of the promise, I wish myself to be sacrificed like one of these animals. Here's the catch. Abraham is asleep when this covenant is sealed. Which means God walked down the lane 
by himself. So he walked down the lane for both of them. Essentially declaring that if I'm unfaithful to my promises or you're unfaithful to your promises, I'm the one who will sacrifice myself like one of these animals in order to make things right between us, in order to reconcile our relationship. You see, this is so much bigger than just one nation in the Middle East. D.A. Carson says God signed Jesus' death sentence that day because he's promising not only a great name, great nation, great blessing, and great land, but he's promising the death of his own dear son in order to reconcile our relationship when we sin. That's how important these promises ultimately are between God and the patriarchs. But they get played out in real time. God sovereignly orchestrating all of history, including verse 13, which says, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in Egypt, and notice will be servants there. How long? 400 years. God also says, I will bring judgment on them, the Egyptians, and afterward bring you out. Flip forward, Genesis 46. You're like, that's better. We're getting close to Exodus at least. Yeah, we're getting there. Genesis 46, verse 1. Tells us, so Israel, that's Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Now, it's really helpful for you to know Beersheba is right across the border from Egypt. So, right here, Genesis 46, Jacob is still standing in the promised land. But he's literally one step away from entering Egypt. Okay, put your feet in his shoes. Look at what verse 2 says. God spoke to Israel in visions and said, Jacob, Jacob, he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you. And I myself will bring you up again. Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Verse 5, then Jacob set out from Beersheba and he went into Egypt. And who exactly went with him? Well, it's listed right there, all the way from verse 5 to 25, right? You get the names of all the tribes. They're, they're all listed. You get every name. We know exactly who went along. And then you get the summary. Verse 27, all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. So again, God's promises are reiterated over and over again. And what do we see from Genesis 46 to 50? We see God's sovereign hand over all the details, including Jacob's beloved son, Joseph, being thrown into a pit to die by his brothers, then enslaved in Egypt, wrongly accused by Potiphar's wife, thrown into a dungeon only to be raised up and sit at the right hand of the most powerful person in all of Egypt, why? We are told to save God's people. What's the divine interpretation of these events? Flip to Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. You see that? Genesis 50, verse 20. What you meant for evil, God meant for good, so that many people should be kept alive. So as we enter Exodus this morning, we're seeing, A, the continuation of Genesis. Not only as the fulfillment of God's promises to the patriarchs and to Israel, but we're seeing the sovereign hand of God in order to accomplish these promises despite being in Egypt and despite great opposition at the hands of Pharaoh. Look again at verse 7. Exodus 1, verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. So God is obviously 
sovereignly fulfilling his promise to make these people a great nation to such an extent that they're filling the earth. Doesn't that make you think of God's promises? Right? They will be like the stars in the sky. They will be like the sand on the seashore. They will be like the dust on the earth. What's your house look like with dust? I know my house. Filled with it, if you will. Right? They're literally filling the earth. There's something else I want you to see. Notice again what verse 7 says. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied, and they filled the land. They filled the earth. Do you know where that language comes from? That's Genesis chapter 1. 128, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's reiterated after the flood to Noah, chapter 9, verse 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God is sovereignly fulfilling his promise. Not just to the patriarchs, but to Adam and Eve. So this is ultimately about the enmity that exists between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Because that's the granddaddy promise of them all, isn't it? Genesis 3.15, that God will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Then he promised, he shall bruise your heel, but you shall crush his head. God sovereignly bringing about his purposes, fulfilling his promises to redeem a people for himself. And God will certainly bring it to pass. His plans will not be thwarted, regardless of the hostility, regardless of the difficulty, regardless of the oppression, which we will soon see. But let me just pause. Because maybe all this talk about God's sovereignty makes you nervous. I mean, maybe you struggle with how to balance God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Now, you need to understand the Bible doesn't have any of those tensions. It puts God's sovereignty right next to man's responsibility all over the place. I could spend the entire afternoon with you flipping from one passage to another, showing you how it puts them right next to each other, has no tension at all. You know, there was a member in Charles Spurgeon's church who who came up to him at one point in time, and he said, Mr. Spurgeon, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? And he said to the man, I don't even try. Here's what he said next. Because God's sovereignty and man's responsibilities, responsibility are friends. So I don't have to try and reconcile friends. I want you to grab a hold of that truth this morning. Because God's sovereignty undergirds his entire ability to make good on his promises. I mean, just think about it. If God's not absolutely sovereign, if his plan can be thwarted, then what confidence can we have that he'll actually be able to do what he's promised to do? But if God is Sovereign, if nothing happens before it passes through his almighty hands and gets his final approval, then we can have all the confidence in the world that his promises will come to pass, that they will happen, that they will come true. Not only with the nation of Israel, but with the people of God. And in your individual life this morning, You see, I think this has tremendous value for us this morning, especially when it comes to hard situations. What are the circumstances in your life that are hard right now? What is it? Maybe it's certain relationships. 
Maybe you've even been sinned against. Maybe people you love are in a bad place. Maybe they're angry or they're moving towards things you know aren't good for them. Maybe your job is stressful. Maybe there's difficulties with coworkers or with your boss. Maybe you just don't like your job. Maybe your expectations about life, about getting married, about owning your own home, about having good health are just not happening for you. Brothers and sisters in all of these situations, in all of these circumstances, God is still on the throne. He's ruling. He's reigning. He's sovereign. He's supreme over all the details in your life. Hear me when I say to you, there is nothing out of control. God is still working. Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph's brothers meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Romans 8, 28. God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God. To those who are called according to His purpose. Listen, the children of Israel were in Egypt for 400 years. Those aren't the circumstances they would have chose for themselves either. And yet God's sovereignly fulfilling His promise of salvation for them, even in the midst of difficulty. And He's doing so in your life as well. With that, let's transition from A, God's unstoppable promises despite Egypt, to B, God's unstoppable promises despite Pharaoh. Follow along as I read verses 8 to 14. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and are too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they sent taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves." Now remember, God warned the Israelites all the way back in Genesis 15 that all of this would happen, that they would be enslaved, that they would be oppressed in Egypt. So this is not a surprise. But verses 8 and 9 give us, A, the human explanation for Pharaoh's oppression because verse 8 says, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. I want you to be clear here. That doesn't mean Pharaoh didn't recognize him at all or know about his past role, or acknowledge the tremendous benefit that he had been to the people of Egypt. He certainly knows all of that. But that doesn't mean that he cares. Right? So, so he knows Joseph in a sense, but he doesn't care about Joseph or the past. As one commentator says, this is the inevitable result of a change in dynasty. No gratitude for benefits bestowed under a previous regime. Verse 9 makes it clear, doesn't it, that the Israelites were simply too many and too mighty for Israel, for the, for the Egyptians. So that's the current problem that the current administration has to deal with. But that being said, I very much want you to rightly interpret verses 10 to 14 because Pharaoh immediately takes matters into his own hands, doesn't he? Arrogantly, self-assured that by his own political craft, his own worldly wisdom, he will certainly be able, without question, to deal with the situation at hand. But you have to see that as the outworking of the seed of the serpent having enmity against the seed of the woman. Why is that? Well, because B, Pharaoh's opposition is expressed in enslavement. So he's going 180 degrees contrary to God's will, to God's plan, to God's promises, to God's covenant. And what's the reason for the enslavement? 
Well, it's number one, man's control. Just look at what Pharaoh says. Verse 10, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape. So what does he suggest? Verse 11, set up taskmasters over them. Notice to afflict them. Verse 12, to oppress them. Verse 13, to deal ruthlessly with them. Verse 14, to make their lives bitter with hard service. Summary, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now there's nothing here to suggest the Israelites were even contemplating any kind of treachery or aligning themselves with any foreign powers. I think the real reason is stated in verse 11. Pharaoh doesn't want them to leave because they're useful. See, he's got some public work projects going on in Pithom and Ramesses that he could use some free labor for. And who better than the Israelites who are already here? So he can solve his labor problem and his immigration problem all in one act of legislation. How exactly does he do it? Well, Pharaoh stirs up fear in the people. Look at verse 12. The Egyptians were terrified of them. Now, can you say there's nothing new under the sun? Boy, oh boy, doesn't that all sound vaguely familiar to what's going on right now in our culture? He argues that the Israelites are living in a strategically vulnerable area, Goshen, where armies attacking from the north could try to invade the land, rally the Israelites, and they turn around and work with those armies and conquer Egypt. So Pharaoh wants to control them, contain them, and if possible, reduce them. As I said, all contrary to God's will, God's purpose, God's plan, God's covenant. And most importantly for us this morning, God's unstoppable promises. So what's number two, the result of this enslavement? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? Because it doesn't work at all. In fact, you could easily say Pharaoh's plan totally backfired. He said, and I quote, look at verse 10, little lawyer-like here this morning, verse 10, come let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. Then you look at verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. So not only further confirmation of God's promise of a great nation, but the ongoing fulfillment of the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with God's image bearers, the people of God. So the seed of the serpent is doing everything he possibly can to wipe out the seed of the woman, but he's failing. Why is that? You have to be crystal clear. He's going 180 degrees contrary to God's will, God's plan, and God's promises. So God's sovereignly protecting the seed of the woman and multiplying them just like he promised back in Genesis. Makes me think of Proverbs 16, 25, that there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death and destruction. Or 1 Corinthians 1, 19, where God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Doesn't that fit perfectly what happened here with Pharaoh? Pharaoh thinks he can manage the people and ultimately manage God, all to accomplish what he wants by his wisdom and his discernment. That plan fails. God's plan prevails. But you know what they say? At first, if you don't succeed, try, try again. So apparently, since slavery didn't work, let's try something else. That's exactly what Pharaoh does. See oppression expressed in murder. Follow along as I read verses 15 to 22. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God, 
and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Verse 22, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now what's the reason for murder? Meaning, why does Pharaoh move in this horrific direction? Well, it has everything to do with the Israelites' multiplication. So because they're growing out of control, he escalates his control and he moves to radical action and brutal severity, including saying to the midwives, Shipra and Pua, verse 16, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is not a son, you shall kill him. Terrific. A couple of quick observations. Number one, notice how these two women are named. These are not leaders. This is not the high priest. These are not major company owners or anything like that. These are midwives but they're named. They're listed right here for us in the Bible. Shipra and Pua. Isn't that awesome? Because they were faithful. That has to be seen in contrast to verse 15. Only description were given in all of Exodus regarding Pharaoh. Most powerful person, literally, at this point in time, in the known world, is simply that he's the king of Egypt. No name, no description, no identity. Why? Well, because Moses. The author, right? His name's not significant. It's not important. Washed away with all of history. But the names of these dear women are to be remembered. Immortalized for all eternity. Number two, notice how this is a secret slaughter. Pharaoh speaks privately to the midwives, instructs them directly, quietly, under the radar. But if he's successful, Israel will be completely destroyed and he'll be a hero. No men for oppression, no men to, to rally against the people of Egypt, and abundant women available to be Egyptian wives. So the popul population multiplication completely will be flipped on its head. How do these dear women react to Pharaoh's secret and satanic command? Verse 17 says, The midwives feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt commanded, but let the male children live. So they refused, not willing to carry out these evil instructions, not willing to act contrary to God's commands. So they had a solid grasp on the sanctity of human life and weren't going to act contrary to their consciences. But of course, when Pharaoh hears about it, he's absolutely furious, as you'd expect. I mean, this is the king of Egypt we're talking about. Viewed himself as divine, and they're dealing with him directly, so no middleman. Now he's demanding an answer for their actions, to which they say, verse 19, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Other words, they're saying it's all happening too fast. We just can't seem to get there in time. Let's think about that a bit. That may be absolutely true. 
Perhaps in God's providence, the birth process for the Hebrews is going faster now in order to protect the lives of these innocent baby boys. Given the fact that God's caused them to multiply under such horrific conditions, this may be totally true and is a total, totally viable interpretation. On the other hand, it's also possible that they're flying high in their response. So taking the 30,000 foot strategy to truth, you, you know what I mean by that, right? You just leave out lots of details when you say something. So technically, that's true, but you've just left out details that are the ones that he really wants to know. If that's the case, then they're being innocent as doves and shrewd as serpents. On the other hand, they just may be lying. If that's the case, you're probably having major tensions right now with the ninth commandment. Let me just ask you, what exactly does the ninth commandment command? It says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Pharaoh is clearly not their neighbor, demonstrated by his command to murder babies. Maybe they're not breaking the ninth commandment at all. So you got three interpretations there. You're going to have to wrestle that through for yourself. But whatever the interpretation, the text doesn't answer it definitively. Instead, it focuses on the fact that these women are commended for fearing God. Verse 17 says, they feared God and did not do what Pharaoh commanded. Verse 20 says, God dealt well with the midwives. Verse 21 says, because they feared God, he gave them families. So they're totally blessed for their faithful, courageous acts of bravery. And please make sure that you understand just how brave they're being here because this is no small task to disobey the direct command of the king of Egypt. This is not like ignoring your boss. This is not like breaking the speed limit. This is not like blowing off some town ordinance where the worst case scenario is you get fired or you lose your job. Instead, we're talking about immediate execution, death by declaration. This is Pharaoh, right? Let it be written. Let it be done. These women knew exactly what they were doing. They weighed, they measured, they counted the cost, and they determined it's totally worth it. There's a lesson here for us to learn, isn't there? The civil government has no right to command or compel us to do anything contrary to the Word of God. Why? Because they're answerable as well to the Word of God. Romans 13. So if any human authority, which by the way, there's only four, Four human authorities, government, husbands, fathers, elders. But if any one of them calls or commands you to do something contrary to God's law, then we're obligated not to do it. Just like the disciples. Acts chapter 5. Who were arrested in prison for preaching the gospel, to which they were commanded not to speak, not to teach, ever again at all in the name of Jesus. How did they respond? They said we must obey God rather than man. I just want to say to you, that doesn't mean they had attitude. The governing authorities can command all sorts of things to which we should do and respond to. Joyfully submitting to our governing authorities. But if they command you to do something contrary to the word of God, then you can say we must obey God rather than man. And you don't have to do that with attitude. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? My favorite triplets, right? 
They're commanded to worship the golden statue. To which they responded, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Meaning, it's a no-brainer for us. We're not going to do that. Then they said this, So either God will save us from the fiery furnace, or not. Either way, there's no way we're going to break the first commandment. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. That's not going to happen. Why? Because we must obey God rather than men. How about Daniel? Daniel chapter 1. How about Daniel again? Daniel chapter 6. Or how about Perpetua? 3000 AD, 300 AD. Worship the emperor. Bow down. Treat him as if he's God. How did she respond? I will not. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christ follower. I can only be that which I am. A person who's saved by grace to live gloriously different than the world around me. If you must, feed me to the beasts, but I must obey God rather than man. Remember what Jesus said, Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Shipra and Pua were crystal clear on that. And we've got to be crystal clear clear on that as well. No matter what their earthly consequences are, you have to be crystal clear in your own mind, in your own heart, that obeying God is always, always, always the right thing to do. And that's true. Why? Just think about this. Why is it true to obey God rather than man? Because of God's glorious promises. That's why. Let's wrap up with number three, the result of murder. And then we'll move towards application. So despite Pharaoh's rage and his absolute commitment to keep the Israelites from multiplying, what happens? Verse 20 says, God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and they grew very strong. How's that going for you, Pharaoh? It's not going very well. Seed of the serpent is doing everything he possibly can to wipe out the seed of the woman. And yet, they keep multiplying. You know, it's like uh, the doubling curse in Harry Potter. I don't usually reference movies because you say you shouldn't watch those movies, but just stay with me, right? The doubling curse in Harry Potter you know the scene, Harry, Hermione, and Ron go into the vault to retrieve the Hufflepuff cup, but literally every single golden treasure that they touch, what happens to it? You know what I'm saying? They touch it and boom, it immediately multiplies tenfold. Then they touch another cup, boom, it multiplies tenfold. That's what's going on here for Pharaoh. No matter what he does, the Israelites multiply. Conclusion, he's failing. But again, why is that? Because he's going 180 degrees contrary to God's will, God's plan, and God's promises. God's sovereignly protecting the seed of the woman, God's people, and he's causing them to multiply, just like he promised he would all the way back in Genesis, that they might be fruitful, that they might multiply, that they might fill the whole earth with his glory. Does Pharaoh give up? No. Just like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, he persists. But now no longer in secret and no longer limited to just two people. Now he commands, notice, all of the people, all of the Egyptians, verse 22, that every son born to the Hebrews shall be cast into the Nile. This is insanity. 
You need to see this as insanity. This is satanic and this is sadistic. This is full-blown infanticide. But does it work? Of course not. Why? Because God's plan cannot be thwarted. God's promises cannot be stopped. No matter the difficulty or the opposition, no man will prevail. No weapon will succeed. Why? Because God is sovereign over all things and God is good. And his promises will surely come to pass. He will do what he promised to do, including the death of his own dear son. Let's transition to Jesus. Now, what's the most obvious connection between this crazy, insane, radical, out-of-control leader who's trying to kill all the newborn baby boys under two years old? Obvious, isn't it? Man, that points forward to Herod, right? Matthew chapter 2. But do you remember where Joseph and Mary ran to keep little baby Jesus safe? Verse 13. Rise, take the baby, and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you because Herod is searching for the child. Why? The text is super clear. Because Herod wants to destroy him which is just the ongoing, A, continuation of enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, which obviously doesn't stop at the birth of Christ, but continues right up to the cross of Christ with this constant growing intensification. First, the devil tempting Jesus in the wilderness. That's Matthew 4. Then Satan entering Judas. That's John chapter 12. And ultimately, the serpent's ability to mobilize this whole arsenal of wicked men, Herod, Pilate, Roman guard, people of Israel, In order to kill him. And yet, how does Acts 4 describe that? Does it say that the seed of the serpent wins? Does it say that Satan was victorious? Or that things were totally out of God's control? No. Acts 4.27 says, For truly in this city there were gathered against Jesus both Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles and the people of God, for what purpose? Verse 28, to do whatever God's hand and God's plan, so God's sovereign will, had predestined to take place. How does that help us this morning? Remember Genesis 15. All the way back... In Genesis 15, God promised to sacrifice his own dear son, just like one of these animals, to restore our relationship, to reconcile us to himself. But God sovereignly worked out all the details, orchestrated all of history. Why? So that he could sovereignly fulfill every single one of his promises. I mean, do you realize that every one of God's promises find their yes and their amen in Jesus Praise God. That's exactly what 2 Corinthians 1 declares. That all God's promises find their yes in him, in Jesus. That's why we utter a hearty amen. People of God, amen. That's right. All glory be to God. That means God's glorious promises of a great name, great blessing, great land, great nation only come to us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Think with me. Great name. There is no greater name than Jesus, than Christ. And there's no greater name than we can wear. No greater badge of honor than Christian. Great blessing. There is no greater blessing to all the earth than the blessing of being forgiven of our sins and having the hope of eternal life. But that's only in Jesus. Acts 4 says there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved and can be saved. Great land. You know, the great land is not ultimately about Canaan. Listen to me. Let that go. We don't care about Canaan. Abraham was looking forward to a land whose architect and builder is God. Right? That's that's 
heaven. And ultimately, when Christ returns, that's the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness reigns. As a great nation, a number that no one can count from every tribe, tongue, people group, country, culture, background, and nation. As many as the stars in the sky. What does that mean for you this morning? If you're sitting here as an unbeliever, or maybe you're sitting here and you would say that you're a Christian, but you really have no idea what Christianity is about. So it's just one of those boxes that you would check on one of those surveys. Yep, single, white, male, hmm, religion. Well, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not an other. Well, then I'm a Christian. If that's you this morning, then you need to know, and I need to tell you, that the only pathway to blessing is in and through Jesus. In fact, I I spent the majority of my week in astonishment, literal astonishment, at just how hard Pharaoh tries. He tries over and over, time and time again, to protect himself from what he saw was a threat and to try and engineer blessings for himself. But it just kept backfiring, didn't it? Everything constantly, consistently, just not working out. Oh, dear unbeliever, why is that? Because everything he was trying to do was running contrary to God's sovereign plan and God's promises. So there's no chance at being successful. Not ultimately, not in the end. I think there's a lesson here to be learned. And it starts by not trying to do everything by your own effort and for your own glory. Which we instinctively do as followers of Adam. We instinctively see Jesus as a threat to our little kingdoms as we try to engineer our own pathetic blessings. But what if you just acknowledged this morning, in this place, What is evident and obvious to everyone in your life who knows you? It's not working. And it won't work. It won't ever work. Instead, come to Christ. Believe in Christ. Rest in Christ. Stop working against God and start working with God and start working for God. Isn't that the most obvious application when you look at Pharaoh? He's working out the very definition of insanity. What is the definition of insanity? Trying to do the same thing over and over and over and over again and somehow expecting a different result. That's insanity. Dear unbeliever, I do not want that for you. There's only one pathway to blessing. And that's through the promises of God given to us in the good news of the gospel. That Jesus stands ready to save through his death, burial, and his resurrection. He offers, listen, you don't have it yet. He offers this to you. He offers to pay your sin. He offers to give you his righteousness. He offers to give you his spirit. He offers to empower you to live for his glory. He offers to you fullness of joy. Pleasures forevermore. Everything you're working so hard on your own to get. He offers Dear unbeliever, do not stand in opposition to Jesus. Jesus is not a threat. Jesus is a gift. God's gift 
from God to you, offered. But you have to receive it. I invite you to receive it. I invite you to own your sin, to repent, to believe, and to be saved. Respond. How about you, dear believer? Aren't God's sovereign promises all that we need to navigate the difficulties of life? He promises. If you don't have this memorized and you're struggling, I'm just going to, when you come in for counseling and you say, I'm struggling, I'm just going to ask you, have you memorized Romans 8.28? And if you say no, I'm going to say, get out of here. (laughs) He promises so clearly, Romans 8.28, that he causes all things. Pause. Not some things. Not most things, not a couple of things, not a few things, not five things. Nope. All things. He causes all things to work together for good. For whom? For everyone? No. For whom? For those who love God. For those who are called according to his purpose. What does that mean? It means God is sovereign and God is good. And God will fulfill every single one of his promises, his purposes, his plans. And he will do it perfectly. Here's where I think we need to grow. Here's where I know I need to grow. Simple truth this morning. In trusting him. Trusting him and waiting on his good and perfect timing. There is so much joy and peace to be found in the promises of God if we will just trust him and wait on him in his timing. The Israelites were in Egypt 400 years years. That's incredible. I, I, I don't think we would last 400 seconds. As Americans, I, I, I know that I can't wait 400 seconds in a drive-thru. I know that, right? If you give me big promises, maybe I'd make it 400 days. Maybe. Maybe four years. 400 years. We are an impatient people. And we don't trust him. So we grumble. And we complain. Oh, how we need to remember the promises of, of God. In fact, you know, that's why we gave you these sheets. Like, we, we, we want you to memorize these. This isn't because we had some red paper around and we just wanted to print stuff out. Right, right? The, the first two of these are the fight of faith. The fight of faith. Here's what it says. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth. Here's what happens when I do that. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but all those who have loved his appearing. Second one. So we do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Here's how you need to interpret life for this light momentary affliction is preparing for me an eternal weight of glory. How helpful are the promises of God. May God give us the grace 
that we would trust him and that we would rest in his good and perfect timing. Allow me to pray to that end. Let's pray. Father, oh, how we need the word of God. I pray that we would not have a Pharaoh complex. That really our whole goal in life is to do things by our own effort and for our own glory. Lord, for those who are here this morning with that attitude, I pray that you would humble them. I pray that you would work in their mind. I pray that you would work in their heart. That they might believe in Jesus. Father, be at work in my brothers' and sisters' lives, that you would be doing a good work, that we would not have the orientation of doing it by our own effort and for our own glory, but by your grace and for your glory, that we would trust you, that we would rest in your good and perfect timing. Father, we're asking that you would do that good work for our good, And for your glory we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.